The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Doppelgangers. The double. Do you have one? Maybe you don't have one yet. The Germans invented the word doppel for double and ganger for walker or goer. Some of you might have one. You might meet him or her face to face, especially here in October. Some of you might see someone who belongs to someone else. The Germans were not alone in recognizing the eeriness of the phenomenon. Egyptians believed in doppelgangers. So did the Greeks. What are they? Ghosts? Imprints that our soul leaves behind? Coincidences? Alternate universes? Psychological projections? Isaac Walton said that the poet John Donne saw one the night that his wife gave birth to a stillborn child. Here's his account of the night in 1612. Quote, Two days after their arrival there, Mr. Dunn was left alone in that room in which Sir Robert and he and some other friends had dinner together. To this place, Sir Robert returned within half an hour, and as he left, so he found Mr. Dunn alone. But in such ecstasy and so altered as to his looks, as amazed Sir Robert to behold him in so much that he earnestly desired Mr. Dunn to declare befallen him in such a short time of his absence, to which Mr. Dunn was not able to make a present answer. But after a long and perplexing pause, did at last say, I have seen a dreadful vision since I saw you. I have seen my dear wife pass twice by me through this room, with her hair hanging about her shoulders and a dead child in her arms. This I have seen since I saw you. To which Sir Robert replied, Sure, sir, you have slept since I saw you, and this is the result of some melancholy dream, which I desire you to forget, for you are now awake. To which Mr. Dunn's reply was, I cannot be surer that I now live than that I have not slept since I saw you, and am Assure that at her second appearing, she stopped, looked me in the face, and vanished. Two hundred years later, another poet, the romantic poet Percy Shelley, wrote about a man meeting a version of himself in Prometheus Unbound. Quote, Ere Babylon was dust, the Magus Zoroaster, my dead child, met his own image walking in the garden. That apparition, soul of men, he saw. For know there are two worlds of life and death, one that which thou beholdest, but the other is underneath the grave, where do inhabit the shadows of all forms that think and live, till death unite them and they part no more. End quote. According to Mary Shelley, Percy's wife, of course, and the author of Frankenstein, she described that Percy had believed that he had met his doppelganger. And once this had been confirmed by another person, 
Here's her account. A week after a miscarriage that nearly killed her, Percy had a nightmare that their house was drowned in a flood. Mary Shelley wrote, quote, Talking it over the next morning, he told me that he had had many visions lately. He had seen the figure of himself which met him as he walked on the terrace and said to him, How long do you mean to be content? No very terrific words and certainly not prophetic of what has occurred, but Shelley had often seen these figures when ill. But the strangest thing is that Mrs. Williams saw him. Now Jane, though a woman of sensibility, has not much imagination and is not in the slightest degree nervous, neither in dreams or otherwise. She was standing one day, the day before I was taken ill, June 15th, at a window that looked on the terrace with Trelawney. It was day. She saw as she thought Shelley pass by the window, as he often was then, without a coat or jacket. He passed again. Now, as he passed both times, the same way, and as from the side towards which he went each time there was no way to get back, except past the window again, except over a wall twenty feet from the ground, she was struck at seeing him pass twice thus, and looked out, and seeing him no more, she cried, Good God, can Shelley have leaped from the wall? Where can he be gone? Shelley, said Trelawney, no, Shelley has passed. What do you mean? Trelawney says that she trembled exceedingly when she heard this, and it proved indeed that Shelley had never been on the terrace and was far off at the time she saw him. End quote. What does this mean? Could it be Shelley's spirit, detached from his body, another version of himself? A twin who's been sneaking around, not revealing himself to the world. A ripple in the space-time fabric, a porthole to a world of ghosts or alternate realities. A few decades after this, Edgar Allan Poe put these thoughts into his short story, William Wilson. We'll explore that story today on The History of of literature. Welcome to the podcast. William Wilson, what a story. Edgar Allan Poe, I don't know what to tell you exactly. You will hear the story for yourself, and Evie Lee is going to be here to help us explore it. It's a story about doubles or doppelgangers, which are maybe not in the same league as Poe's tales of horror, with premature burials and murders and fits of insanity, but there is some horror in this too. Imagine meeting yourself, only you're not friends. The person who looks like you, who is you, wants something from you. 
wants to impose his will on you. Will, son. Maybe it's the son of your own will. That's been suggested by some critics. William Wilson, Will's son. Maybe you've willed this creature into being. Maybe you want this person to exist so badly that you yourself have just imagined him being there. Maybe you see him because he fills some absence. Maybe you see him because you're insane. Or maybe he's sent by some other force, some supernatural demonic force. Poe doesn't reveal whether he's insane in the narration. He keeps things rational. He tells the story almost calmly, in a measured way, not wild-eyed and sweaty like some of his other narrators. That's deliberate, of course. That's the effect he's going for with William Wilson. What I want you to think about as we get ready for Evie to arrive is the Edgar Allan Poe life story that I started telling you about last time. The two sides of Poe, the side that wanted to love and be loved, who was looking for parents, who wanted a mother slash bride. Even his bride, who was 13, was an attempt to find a mother. It's been suggested he seems to have been as in love with his aunt as his cousin. He wanted his aunt to mother him, maybe. He called his wife Sis of all things. Some have suggested the marriage might never have been consummated. Frankly, I'm not sure if we have evidence on this telling us definitively one way or the other. But I do know that on this side, the side of Edgar being a good husband is also the Edgar who joined the military and the Edgar who worked for magazines as an editor and the Edgar who tried very hard to make it, to keep his head above water, to earn his keep, to scratch out a living. And then there's the other side of Poe, the side that sees one person close to him after another leave him or die, and his own demons, the compulsion to drink, the taste for gambling, the self-destructive qualities. He was like Sherlock Holmes. He was that intelligent. If Holmes hadn't just dabbled in cocaine, but had gone on full-blown benders where he nearly killed himself and went into cocaine psychosis and kept trying to stop and couldn't and hated himself for it. That would perfect the analogy. And then wrote about it, too, while all this was going on. But he could use his powers of rationality and reason to write measured prose, but he could tap into that dark side, too, those demons and his self-loathing which helped conjure up these tales of insanity and horror. For Poe, though, this wasn't cocaine. To be clear, it was alcohol and gambling and intense grief and terror of disease and death and some laudanum. He writes about this in his letters. He'll say, I'm done with drinking forever. He'll say, some people know me only as the one who drinks. That's a different person. I'm very different when I'm not drinking. I know that. We see that haunting keeps coming back to Edgar Allan Poe and that suffuses his stories. So let's keep that in mind. Here was a man at war with himself. Is that what pulls him into two, the two William Wilsons? Or is there something else going on? Let's take a quick break, then come back with Evie Lee after this. (laughs) 
Okay. Joining me now is Evie Lee, a vice president of the Literature Supporters Club, who's here to talk about Edgar Allan Poe and his 1839 story, William Wilson. Evie, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hello, Jack. Thank you for having me. So this is such a famous story, and it's been so influential, and yet I don't think it's read as much as Poe's other works are read, especially his detective stories and, of course, his tales of horror like The Telltale Heart or his poems like The Raven. Was this the first time that you've read William Wilson? I think it is, Jack. I um, was introduced to the two you just mentioned, Telltale Heart and The Raven, and I think I endeavored to read other Poe stories after those mm-hmm. two, but then the language is so dense, I gave up <laughs> <Yeah>. soon after. <laughs> right, and that's before we hear the story here, that was one of the things I wanted to tell people, especially this story, William Wilson. It starts a little slow. I'm going to break it into two parts. The first part is the narrator's youth and childhood before William Wilson enters the scene. I think what's important is that the narrator did not have great parenting. I don't know if you picked up on that, but he he really didn't have many boundaries. He says, quote, my parents could do little to check the evil propensities which distinguished me, (laughs) which is (laughs) kind of uh, honest and candid. And he says their efforts were feeble and ill-directed, and he had a total triumph over them. And he says, I was left to the guidance of my own will and became in all but name the master of my own actions. So before we begin here, I know you're a parent. I'm sure you're not uh, letting this happen to your child. And I (laughs) hope that none of your fellow parents are in your peer group. But I remember what it was like when I was a kid, when parents were letting their kids run wild or being their best friends, you'd go to someone's house and you'd see that the kid was kind of uh, in charge. And I think in some ways, this story is spins out some of the potential consequences of that. Uh, have you ever seen that with your friends or anything when you've uh, parents running the house or uh, kids running the household? You know, I might see it in my own household. <laughs> my, I, I have an only and I tend to treat that only as, you know, a little person who has a voice. Yeah. Um, we try to reason and not quite. He's not quite a terror like um, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, William Wilson is, but I will note that he did say it was hereditary, so maybe he gets it from his family. <laughs> <laughs> They're all terrors running around. Right. Well, I'm just thinking the kids kind of develop a power where it's dangerous, and when they don't have boundaries, which in the story, that's kind of the setup for what comes next, which is the trip to the boarding school and the arrival of William Wilson, which, as it happens, is the same name as the narrator. The narrator has. Is there anything else listeners should keep in mind before we hear the story here? Well, I guess the only thing I would say is the first story in October when you uh, introduced Poe to mm. to us, uh, there was the um, perverse of the imp little intro. Maybe there's oh, a little bit of that yeah, around right. in this story. So maybe look out for that to see if you uh, can find some through lines. Yes, the uh, the the feeling that maybe you're doing things wrong just because they're bad for you, or just just there's something inside you that drives you to doing something that's damaging mm-hmm. or or harmful. Okay, mm-hmm. so here's what we're going to do. Let's listen to the story. We're going to take a break. 
uh, now, and then we'll hear the first introductory part of the story, which is about 10 or 15 minutes. I guess if someone wants to skip ahead to the next round and, and the music, they could feel free to do that. Although I would say to listen, it's a slow build. You could think of it that way. It's some of the later stories, uh, like the Telltale Heart or the Cask of Amontillado, just start with the madness. The character, the narrator, drops you right into the middle of his mania. And this one starts rationally, where the character kind of wins you over. He impresses you with his reasoning and his descriptions and then the madness is introduced somewhat slowly and so the unusual or fantastical circumstances are set against the backdrop of the seeming rationality of the narrator so we'll do about 15 minutes then take another short break then pick up the story again when william wilson arrives so if you do skip ahead uh, i'm talking to the listeners now you'll miss some preliminaries and you'll hear that the person, the narrator, is more or less normal if somewhat strong-willed and somewhat mischievous. He's someone who's used to going for what he wants and dominating those around him. And then after the story, Evie and I will come back to discuss William Wilson. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. William Wilson by Edgar Allan Poe Let me call myself, for the present, William Wilson. The fair page now lying before me need not be sullied with my real appellation. This has been already too much an object for the scorn, for the horror, for the detestation of my race. To the uttermost regions of the globe have not the indignant winds brooded its unparalleled infamy? Oh, outcast of all outcasts, most abandoned, to the earth art thou not forever dead, to its honors, to its flowers, to its golden aspirations, and a cloud, dense, dismal, and limitless, does it not hang eternally between thy hopes and heaven? I would not, if I could, here or today, embody a record of my later years of unspeakable misery, 
an unpardonable crime. This epoch, these later years, took unto themselves a sudden elevation in turpitude, whose origin alone it is my present purpose to assign. Men usually grow base by degrees. From me, in an instant, all virtue dropped bodily as a mantle. From comparatively trivial wickedness I passed, with the stride of a giant, into more than the enormities of an elagabalus. What chance, what one event, brought this evil thing to pass? Bear with me while I relate. Death approaches, and the shadow which foreruns him has thrown a softening influence over my spirit. I long, in passing through the dim valley, for the sympathy, I had nearly said, for the pity, of my fellow men. I would fain have them believe that I have been in some measure the slave of circumstances beyond human control. I would wish them to seek out for me, in the details I am about to give, some little oasis of fatality amid a wilderness of error. I would have them allow what they cannot refrain from allowing, that, although temptation may have erewhile existed as great, man was never thus, at least, tempted before, certainly never thus fell. And is it therefore that he has never thus suffered? Have I not indeed been living in a dream, and am I not now dying a victim to the horror and the mystery of the wildest of all sublunary visions? I am the descendant of a race whose imaginative and easily excitable temperament has at all times rendered them remarkable. And, in my earliest infancy, I gave evidence of having fully inherited the family character. As I advanced in years, it was more strongly developed, becoming, for many reasons, a cause of serious disquietude to my friends and of positive injury to myself. I grew self-willed, addicted to the wildest caprices, and a prey to the most ungovernable passions. Weak-minded and beset with constitutional infirmities akin to my own, my parents could do but little to check the evil propensities which distinguished me. Some feeble and ill-directed efforts resulted in complete failure on their part, and, of course, in total triumph on mine. Thenceforward, my voice was a household law, and at an age when few children have abandoned their leading strings, I was left to the guidance of my own will, and became, in all but name, the master of my own actions. My earliest recollections of a school life are connected with a large, rambling, Elizabethan house in a misty-looking village of England, where were a vast number of gigantic and gnarled trees, and where all the houses were excessively ancient. In truth, it was a dreamlike and spirit-soothing place, that venerable old town. At this moment, in fancy, I feel the refreshing chilliness of its deeply shadowed avenues, inhale the fragrance of its thousand shrubberies, and thrill anew with undefinable delight at the deep hollow note of the church bell breaking each hour with sullen and sudden roar upon the stillness of the dusky atmosphere in which the fretted Gothic steeple lay embedded and asleep. It gives me, perhaps, as much of pleasure as I can now in any manner experience to dwell upon minute recollections of the school 
and its concerns. Steeped in misery as I am, misery, alas, only too real, I shall be pardoned for seeking relief, however slight and temporary, in the weakness of a few rambling details. These, moreover, utterly trivial and even ridiculous in themselves, assume, to my fancy, adventitious importance, as connected with a period and a locality when and where I recognize the first ambiguous monitions of the destiny which afterwards so fully overshadowed me. Let me then remember. The house, I have said, was old and irregular. The grounds were extensive, and a high and solid brick wall, topped with a bed of mortar and broken glass, encompassed the whole. This prison-like rampart formed the limit of our domain. Beyond it we saw but thrice a week, once every Saturday afternoon, when, attended by two ushers, we were permitted to take brief walks in a body through some of the neighboring fields, and twice during Sunday, when we were paraded in the same formal manner to the morning and evening service in, one, in the one church of the village. Of this church, the principal of our school was pastor. With how deep a spirit of wonder and perplexity was I wont to regard him from our remote pew in the gallery, as, with step solemn and slow, he ascended the pulpit. This reverend man, with countenance so demurely benign, with robes so glossy and so clerically flowing, with wigs so minutely powdered, so rigid and so vast, could this be he who, of late, with sour visage and in snuffy habiliments, administered, ferule in hand, the draconian laws of the academy? Oh, gigantic paradox, too utterly monstrous for solution. At an angle of the ponderous wall frowned a more ponderous gate. It was riveted and studded with iron bolts, and surmounted with jagged iron spikes. What impressions of deep awe did it inspire? It was never opened, save for the three periodical egressions and ingressions already mentioned. Then, in every creak of its mighty hinges, we found a plenitude of mystery, a world of matter for solemn remark, or for more solemn meditation. The extensive enclosure was irregular in form, having many capacious recesses. Of these, three or four of the largest constituted the playground. It was level and covered with fine, hard gravel. I well remember it had no trees, nor benches, nor anything similar within it. Of course, it was in the rear of the house. In front lay a small parterre, planted with box and other shrubs, but through this sacred division we passed only upon rare occasions indeed such as a first advent to school, or final departure thence, or perhaps, when a parent or friend having called for us, we joyfully took our way home for the Christmas or Midsummer Holy Days. But the house! How quaint an old building was this! To me, how veritably a palace of enchantment! There was really no end to its windings, to its incomprehensible subdivisions. It was difficult— at any given time, to say with certainty upon which of its two stories one happened to be. From each room to every other, there were sure to be found three or four steps, either in ascent or descent. Then the lateral branches were innumerable, inconceivable, and so, returning in upon themselves, 
that our most exact ideas in regard to the whole mansion were not very far different from those with which we pondered upon infinity. During the five years of my residence here, I was never able to ascertain with precision in what remote locality lay the little sleeping apartment assigned to myself and some eighteen or twenty other scholars. The schoolroom was the largest in the house. I could not help thinking, in the world. It was very long, narrow, and dismally low, with pointed Gothic windows and a ceiling of oak. In a remote and terror-inspiring angle was a square enclosure of eight or ten feet, comprising the sanctum, during hours of our principal, the Reverend Dr. Bransby. It was a solid structure, with massy door, sooner than open which, in the absence of the dominie, we would all have willingly perished by the painfort it dur. In other angles were two other similar boxes, far less reverenced indeed, but still greatly matters of awe. One of these was the pulpit of the classical usher, one of the English and mathematical. Interspersed about the room, crossing and recrossing in endless irregularity, were innumerable benches and desks, black, ancient, and time-worn, piled desperately with much-bethumbed books, and so beseamed with initial letters, names at full length, grotesque figures, and other multiplied efforts of the knife, as to have entirely lost what little of original form might have been their portion in days long departed. A huge bucket with water stood at one extremity of the room, and a clock of stupendous dimensions at the other. Encompassed by the massy walls of this venerable academy, I passed, yet not in tedium or disgust, the years of the third lustrum of my life. The teeming brain of childhood requires no external world of incident to occupy or amuse it, and the apparently dismal monotony of a school was replete with more intense excitement than my riper youth has derived from luxury, or my full manhood from crime. Yet I must believe that my first mental development had in it much of the uncommon, even much of the outré. Upon mankind at large, the events of very early existence rarely leave in mature age any definite impression. All is gray shadow, a weak and irregular remembrance, an indistinct regathering of feeble pleasures and phantasmagoric pains. With me, this is not so. In childhood, I must have felt with the energy of a man what I now find stamped upon memory in lines as vivid, as deep, and as durable as the excroges of the Carthaginian metals. Yet, in fact, in the fact of the world's view, how little was there to remember. The morning's awakening, the nightly summons to bed, the connings, the recitations, the periodical half-holidays and perambulations the playground with its broils, its pastimes, its intrigues. These, by a mental sorcery long forgotten, were made to involve a wilderness of sensation, a world of rich incident, a universe of varied emotion, of excitement the most passionate and spirit-stirring. Oh, les bons temps, que ce siècle de fer. In truth, the ardor, the enthusiasm, and the imperiousness of my disposition soon rendered me a marked character among my schoolmates, and by slow 
but natural gradations, gave me an ascendancy over all not greatly older than myself, over all with a single exception. This exception was found in the person of a scholar who, although no relation, bore the same Christian and surname as myself, a circumstance, in fact, little remarkable, for, notwithstanding a noble descent, mine was one of those everyday appellations which seem, by prescriptive right, to have been, time out of mind, the common property of the mob. In this narrative, I have therefore designated myself as William Wilson, a fictitious title not very dissimilar to the real. My namesake alone, of those who in school phraseology constituted our set, presumed to compete with me in the studies of the class, in the sports and broils of the playground, to refuse implicit belief in my assertions and submission to my will, indeed to interfere with my arbitrary dictation in any respect whatsoever. If there is on earth a supreme and unqualified despotism, it is the despotism of a mastermind in boyhood over the less energetic spirits of its companions. Wilson's rebellion was to me a source of the greatest embarrassment, the more so as, in spite of the bravado with which in public I made a point of treating him and his pretensions, I secretly felt that I feared him, and could not help thinking the equality which he maintained so easily with myself, a proof of his true superiority, since not to be overcome cost me a perpetual struggle. Yet this superiority... Even this equality was in truth acknowledged by no one but myself. Our associates, by some unaccountable blindness, seemed not even to suspect it. Indeed, his competition, his resistance, and especially his impertinent and dogged interference with my purposes were not more pointed than private. He appeared to be destitute alike of the ambition which urged and of the passionate energy of mind which enabled me to excel. In his rivalry, he might have been supposed actuated solely by a whimsical desire to thwart, astonish, or mortify myself, although there were times when I could not help observing, with a feeling made up of wonder, abasement, and pique, that he mingled with his injuries, his insults, or his contradictions, a certain most inappropriate and assuredly most unwelcome affectionateness of manner. I could only conceive this singular behavior to arise from a consummate self-conceit, assuming the vulgar airs of patronage and protection. Perhaps it was this latter trait in Wilson's conduct, conjoined with our identity of name and the mere accident of our having entered the school upon the same day, 
which set afloat the notion that we were brothers among the senior classes in the academy. These do not usually inquire with much strictness into the affairs of their juniors. I have before said, or should have said, that Wilson was not in the most remote degree connected with my family. But assuredly, if we had been brothers, we must have been twins. For, after leaving Dr. Bransby's, I casually learned that my namesake was born on the 19th of January, 1809. And this is a somewhat remarkable coincidence, for the day is precisely that of my own nativity. It may seem strange that in spite of the continual anxiety occasioned me by the rivalry of Wilson and his intolerable spirit of contradiction, I could not bring myself to hate him altogether. We had, to be sure, nearly every day a quarrel in which, yielding me publicly the palm of victory, he, in some manner, contrived to make me feel that it was he who had deserved it. Yet a sense of pride on my part, and a veritable dignity on his own, kept us always upon what are called speaking terms. While there were many points of strong congeniality in our tempers, operating to awake in me a sentiment which our position alone, perhaps, prevented from ripening into friendship. It is difficult, indeed, to define, or even to describe, my real feelings towards him. They formed a motley and heterogeneous admixture, some petulant animosity, which was not yet hatred, some esteem, more respect, much fear, with a world of uneasy curiosity. To the moralist, it will be unnecessary to say, in addition, that Wilson and myself were the most inseparable of companions. It was no doubt the anomalous state of affairs existing between us which turned all my attacks upon him, and they were many, either open or covert, into the channel of banter or practical joke, giving pain while assuming the aspect of mere fun, rather than into a more serious and determined hostility. But my endeavors on this head were by no means uniformly successful, even when my plans were the most wittily concocted, for my namesake had much about him, in character, of that unassuming and quiet austerity which— while enjoying the poignancy of its own jokes, has no heel of Achilles in itself, and absolutely refuses to be laughed at. I could find, indeed, but one vulnerable point, and that, lying in a personal peculiarity, arising, perhaps, from constitutional disease, would have been spared by any antagonist less at his wit's end than myself." My rival had a weakness in the fossil or guttural organs which precluded him from raising his voice at any time above a very low whisper. Of this defect, I did not fail to take what poor advantage lay in my power. Wilson's retaliations in kind were many, and there was one form of his practical wit that disturbed me beyond measure. How his sagacity first discovered at all that so petty a thing would vex me is a question I never could solve. But, having discovered, he habitually practiced the annoyance. I had always felt aversion to my uncourtly patronymic, and its very common, if not plebeian, pronomen. The words were venom in my ears, and when, upon the day of my arrival, a second William Wilson came also to the academy— I felt angry with him for bearing the name, 
and doubly disgusted with the name because a stranger bore it, who would be the cause of its twofold repetition, who would be constantly in my presence, and whose concerns in the ordinary routine of the school business must inevitably, on account of the detestable coincidence, be often confounded with my own. The feeling of vexation thus engendered grew stronger with every circumstance tending to show resemblance, moral or physical, between my rival and myself. I had not then discovered the remarkable fact that we were of the same age, but I saw that we were of the same height, and I perceived that we were even singularly alike in general contour of person and outline of feature. I was galled, too, by the rumor touching a relationship which had grown current in the upper forms. In a word, nothing could more seriously disturb me, although I scrupulously concealed such disturbance, than any allusion to a similarity of mind, person, or condition existing between us. But in truth, I had no reason to believe that, with the exception of the matter of relationship, and in the case of Wilson himself, this similarity had ever been made a subject of comment, or even observed at all, by our schoolfellows. That he observed it in all its bearings, and as fixedly as I, was apparent. But that he could discover in such circumstances so fruitful a field of annoyance can only be attributed, as I said before, to his more than ordinary penetration." His cue, which was to perfect an imitation of myself, lay both in words and in actions, and most admirably did he play his part. My dress it was an easy matter to copy, my gait and general manner were, without difficulty, appropriated, in spite of his constitutional defect. Even my voice did not escape him. My louder tones were, of course, unattempted, but then the key, it was identical and his singular whisper, it grew the very echo of my own. How greatly this most exquisite portraiture harassed me, for it could not justly be termed a caricature. I will not now venture to describe. I had but one consolation in the fact that the imitation, apparently, was noticed by myself alone and that I had to endure only the knowing and strangely sarcastic smiles of my namesake himself. Satisfied with having produced in my bosom the intended effect, he seemed to chuckle in secret over the sting he had inflicted, and was characteristically disregardful of the public applause which the success of his witty endeavors might have so easily elicited. That the school, indeed, did not feel his design— perceive its accomplishment, and participate in his sneer, was, for many anxious months, a riddle I could not resolve. Perhaps the gradation of his copy rendered it not so readily perceptible, or, more possibly, I owed my security to the masterly air of the copyist, who, disdaining the letter, which in a painting is all the obtuse can see, gave but the full spirit of his original for my individual contemplation, and chagrin. I have already more than once spoken of the disgusting air of patronage which he assumed toward me, and of his frequent officious interference with my will. This interference often took the ungracious character of advice, advice not openly given, but hinted or insinuated. I received it with a repugnance which gained strength as I grew in years. 
Yet at this distant day, let me do him the simple justice to acknowledge that I can recall no occasion when the suggestions of my rival were on the side of those errors or follies so usual to his immature age and seeming inexperience, that his moral sense, at least, if not his general talents and worldly wisdom, was far keener than my own, and that I might today have been a better and thus a happier man had I less frequently rejected the counsels embodied in those meaning whispers which I then but too cordially hated and too bitterly despised. As it was, I at length grew restive in the extreme under his distasteful supervision, and daily resented more and more openly what I considered his intolerable arrogance. I have said that, in the first years of our connection as schoolmates, my feelings in regard to him might have been easily ripened into friendship. But, in the latter months of my residence at the academy, although the intrusion of his ordinary manner had, beyond doubt, in some measure abated, my sentiments, in nearly similar proportion, partook very much of positive hatred. Upon one occasion he saw this, I think, and afterwards avoided, or made a show of avoiding me. It was about the same period, if I remember aright, that, in an altercation of violence with him, in which he was more than usually thrown off his guard, and spoke and acted with an openness of demeanor rather foreign to his nature, I discovered, or fancied I discovered, in his accent, his air, and general appearance, a something which first startled and then deeply interested me, by bringing to mind dim visions of my earliest infancy, wild, confused, and thronging memories of a time when memory herself was yet unborn. I cannot better describe the sensation which oppressed me than by saying that I could with difficulty shake off the belief of my having been acquainted with the being who stood before me, at some epoch very long ago, some point of the past even infinitely remote. The delusion, however, faded rapidly as it came, and I mention it at all but to define the day of the last conversation I there held with my singular namesake. The huge old house, with its countless subdivisions, had several large chambers communicating with each other, where slept the greater number of the students. There were, however, as must necessarily happen in a building so awkwardly planned, many little nooks or recesses, the odds and ends of the structure, and these the economic ingenuity of Dr. Bransby had also fitted up as dormitories, although, being the merest closets, they were capable of accommodating but a single individual. One of these small apartments was occupied by Wilson. One night, about the close of my fifth year at the school, and immediately after the altercation just mentioned, finding everyone wrapped in sleep, I arose from the bed and, lamp in hand, stole through a wilderness of narrow passages from my own bedroom to that of my rival. I had long been plotting one of those ill-natured pieces of practical wit at his expense, in which I had hitherto been so uniformly unsuccessful. It was my intention now to put my scheme in operation, and I resolved to make him feel the whole extent of the malice with which I was imbued. Having reached his closet, I noiselessly entered, leaving the lamp with a shade over it on the outside. I advanced a step and listened to the sound of his tranquil breathing. Assured of his being asleep, I returned, 
took the light, and with it again approached the bed. Closed curtains were around it, which, in the prosecution of my plan, I slowly and quietly withdrew. When the bright rays fell vividly upon the sleeper, and my eyes at the same moment upon his countenance, I looked, and a numbness, an iciness of feeling instantly pervaded my frame. My breast heaved, my knees tottered, my whole spirit became possessed with an objectless yet intolerable horror. Gasping for breath, I lowered the lamp in still nearer proximity to the face. Were these, these the lineaments of William Wilson? I saw indeed that they were his, but I shook as if with a fit of the ague in fancying they were not. What was there about them to confound me in this manner? I gazed, while my brain reeled with a multitude of incoherent thoughts. Not thus he appeared, assuredly not thus, in the vivacity of his waking hours. The same name, the same contour of person, the same day of arrival at the academy, and then his dogged and meaningless imitation of my gait, my voice, my habits, and my manner. Was it, in truth, within the bounds of human possibility, that what I now saw was the result, merely, of the habitual practice of this sarcastic imitation? Awe-stricken, and with a creeping shudder, I extinguished the lamp, passed silently from the chamber, and left, at once, the halls of that old academy never to enter them again. After a lapse of some months spent at home in mere idleness, I found myself a student at Eton. The brief interval had been sufficient to enfeeble my remembrance of the events at Dr. Bransby's, or at least to effect a material change in the nature of the feelings with which I remembered them. The truth, the tragedy of the drama, was no more. I could now find room to doubt the evidence of my senses, and seldom called up the subject at all but with wonder at the extent of human credulity, and a smile at the vivid force of the imagination which I hereditarily possessed. Neither was this species of skepticism likely to be diminished by the character of the life I led at Eton. The vortex of thoughtless folly into which I there, so immediately and so recklessly plunged, washed away all but the froth of my past hours, engulfed at once every solid or serious impression, and left to memory only the various levities of a former existence. I do not wish, however, to trace the course of my miserable profligacy here, a profligacy which set at defiance the laws while it eluded the vigilance of the institution. Three years of folly, passed without profit, had but given me rooted habits of vice, and added, in a somewhat unusual degree, to my bodily stature, when, after a week of soulless dissipation, I invited a small party of the most dissolute students to a secret carousal in my chambers. We met at a late hour of the night, for our debaucheries were to be faithfully protracted until morning." The wine flowed freely, and there were not wanting other and perhaps more dangerous seductions, so that the gray dawn had already faintly appeared in the east, while our delirious extravagance was at its height. 
madly flushed with cards and intoxication, I was in the act of insisting upon a toast of more than wanted profanity, when my attention was suddenly diverted by the violent, although partial unclosing of the door of the apartment, and by the eager voice of a servant from without. He said that some person, apparently in great haste, demanded to speak with me in the hall. Wildly excited with wine, the unexpected interruption rather delighted than surprised me. I staggered forward at once, and a few steps brought me to the vestibule of the building. In this low and small room there hung no lamp, and now no light at all was admitted, save that of the exceedingly feeble dawn which made its way through the semicircular window. As I put my foot over the threshold, I became aware of the figure of a youth about my own height, inhabited in a white kerseymere morning frock, cut in the novel fashion of the one I myself wore at the moment. This the faint light enabled me to perceive, but the features of his face I could not distinguish. Upon my entering, he strode hurriedly up to me, and, seizing me by the arm, with a gesture of petulant impatience, whispered the words, William Wilson, in my ear. I grew perfectly sober in an instant. There was that in the manner of the stranger, and in the tremulous shake of his uplifted finger as he held it between my eyes and the light, which filled me with unqualified amazement. But it was not this which had so violently moved me. It was the pregnancy of solemn admonition in the singular, low, hissing utterance. And, above all, it was the character, the tone, the key of those few simple and familiar yet whispered syllables, which came with a thousand thronging memories of bygone days and struck upon my soul with the shock of a galvanic battery. Ere I could recover the use of my senses, he was gone. Although this event failed not of a vivid effect upon my disordered imagination, yet was it evanescent as vivid. For some weeks, indeed, I busied myself in earnest inquiry, or was wrapped in a cloud of morbid speculation. I did not pretend to disguise from my perception the identity of the singular individual who thus perseveringly interfered with my affairs and harassed me with his insinuated counsel. But who and what was this Wilson, and whence came he, and what were his purposes? Upon neither of these points could I be satisfied, merely ascertaining, in regard to him, that a sudden accident in his family had caused his removal from Dr. Bransby's academy on the afternoon of the day in which I myself had eloped. But in a brief period I ceased to think upon the subject, my attention being all absorbed in a contemplated departure for Oxford. Thither I soon went, the uncalculating vanity of my parents furnishing me with an outfit, an annual establishment, which would enable me to indulge at will in the luxury already so dear to my heart, to vie in profuseness of expenditure with the haughtiest heirs of the wealthiest earldoms in Great Britain. Excited by such appliances to vice, my constitutional temperament broke forth with redoubled ardor, and as I spurned even the common restraints of decency and the mad infatuation of my revels, 
but it were absurd to pause in the detail of my extravagance. Let it suffice that among spendthrifts I outherited Herod, and that, giving name to a multitude of novel follies, I added no brief appendix to the long catalogue of vices than usual in the most dissolute university of Europe. It could hardly be credited, however, that I had, even here, so utterly fallen from the gentlemanly estate as to seek acquaintance with the vilest arts of the gambler by profession, and, having become an adept in his despicable science, to practice it habitually as a means of increasing my already enormous income at the expense of the weak-minded among my fellow collegians. Such, nevertheless, was the fact, and the very enormity of this offense against all manly and honorable sentiment proved, beyond doubt, the main if not the sole reason of the impunity with which it was committed. Who, indeed, among my most abandoned associates would not rather have disputed the clearest evidence of his senses than have suspected of such courses the gay, the frank, the generous William Wilson, the noblest and most liberal commoner at Oxford, him whose follies, said his parasites, were but the follies of youth and unbridled fancy, whose errors but inimitable whim, whose darkest vice but a careless and dashing extravagance. I had been now two years successfully busied in this way when there came to the university a young parvenu, nobleman, Glendinning. Rich, said report, as Herodes Atticus, his riches, too, as easily acquired. I soon found him of weak intellect, and, of course, marked him as a fitting subject for my skill. I frequently engaged him in play, and contrived with the gambler's usual art to let him win considerable sums, the more effectually to entangle him in my snares. At length, my schemes being ripe, I met him, with the full intention that this meeting should be final and decisive, at the chambers of a fellow commoner, Mr. Preston, equally intimate with both, but who, to do him justice, entertained not even a remote suspicion of my design. To give to this a better coloring, I had contrived to have assembled a party of some eight or ten, and was solicitously careful that the introduction of cards should appear accidental and originate in the proposal of my contemplated dupe himself. To be brief upon a vile topic, none of the low finesse was omitted, so customary upon similar occasions that it is a just matter for wonder how any are still found so besotted as to fall its victim. We had protracted our sitting far into the night, and I had at length effected the maneuver of getting Glendinning as my sole antagonist. The game, too, was my favorite ecarte. The rest of the company, interested in the extent of our play, had abandoned their own cards and were standing around us as spectators. The parvenu, who had been induced by my artifices in the early part of the evening to drink deeply, now shuffled, dealt, or played with a wild nervousness of manner for which his intoxication, I thought, might partially, but could not altogether, account. In a very short period, he had become my debtor to a large amount, when, having taken a long draught of port, he did precisely what I had been coolly anticipating. He proposed to double our already extravagant stakes. 
With a well-feigned show of reluctance, and not until after my repeated refusal had seduced him into some angry words, which gave a color of pique to my compliance, did I finally comply. The result, of course, did but prove how entirely the prey was in my toils. In less than an hour he had quadrupled his debt. For some time his countenance had been losing the florid tinge lent it by the wine, but now, to my astonishment, I perceived that it had grown to a pallor truly fearful. I say to my astonishment. Glendinning had been represented to my eager inquiries as immeasurably wealthy, and the sums which he had as yet lost, although in themselves vast, could not, I supposed, very seriously annoy much less so violently affect him. That he was overcome by the wine just swallowed was the idea which most readily presented itself, and, rather with a view to the preservation of my own character in the eyes of my associates than from any less interested motive, I was about to insist, peremptorily, upon a discontinuance of the play, when some expressions at my elbow from among the company, and an ejaculation evincing utter despair on the part of Glendinning, gave me to understand that I had effected his total ruin under circumstances which, rendering him an object for the pity of all, should have protected him from the ill offices even of a fiend. What now might have been my conduct it is difficult to say. The pitiable condition of my dupe had thrown an air of embarrassed gloom over all, and for some moments a profound silence was maintained, during which I could not help feeling my cheeks tingle with the many burning glances of scorn or reproach cast upon me by the less abandoned of the party. I will even own that an intolerable weight of anxiety was for a brief instant lifted from my bosom by the sudden and extraordinary interruption which ensued. The wide, heavy folding doors of the apartment were all at once thrown open to their full extent with a vigorous and rushing impetuosity that extinguished as if by magic every candle in the room. Their light, in dying, enabled us just to perceive that a stranger had entered, about my own height, and closely muffled in a cloak. The darkness, however, was now total, and we could only feel that he was standing in our midst. Before any one of us could recover from the extreme astonishment into which this rudeness had thrown all, we heard the voice of the intruder. Gentlemen, he said in a low, distinct, and never-to-be-forgotten whisper, which thrilled to the very marrow of my bones. Gentlemen, I make no apology for this behavior, because in thus behaving I am but fulfilling a duty. You are, beyond doubt, uninformed of the true character of the person who has tonight won at Ecarte a large sum of money from Lord Glendinning. I will therefore put you upon an expeditious and decisive plan of obtaining this very necessary information. Please to examine, at your leisure, the inner linings of the cuff of his left sleeve and the several little packages which may be found in the somewhat capacious pockets of his embroidered morning wrapper. While he spoke, so profound was the stillness that one might have heard a pin drop upon the floor. In ceasing, 
he departed at once, and as abruptly as he had entered. Can I, shall I describe my sensations? Must I say that I felt all the horrors of the damned? Most assuredly I had little time given for reflection. Many hands roughly seized me upon the spot, and lights were immediately reprocured. A search ensued. In the lining of my sleeve were found all the court cards essential in écarté, and in the pockets of my wrapper a number of packs, facsimiles of those used at our sittings, with the single exception that mine were of the species called technically arondes. The honors being slightly convex at the ends, the lower cards slightly convex at the sides. In this disposition, the dupe who cuts, as customary, at the length of the pack, will invariably find that he cuts his antagonist in honor, while the gambler, cutting at the breadth, will, as certainly, cut nothing for his victim, which may count in the records of the game." Any burst of indignation upon this discovery would have affected me less than the silent contempt or the sarcastic composure with which it was received. "'Mr. Wilson,' said our host, stooping to remove from beneath his feet an exceedingly luxurious cloak of rare furs, "'Mr. Wilson, this is your property.' The weather was cold, and upon quitting my own room I had thrown a cloak over my dressing wrapper, putting it off upon reaching the scene of play. I presume it is supererogatory to seek here, eyeing the folds of the garment with a bitter smile, for any farther evidence of your skill. Indeed, we have had enough. You will see the necessity, I hope, of quitting Oxford, at all events, of quitting instantly my chambers. Abased, humbled to the dust as I then was, it is probable that I should have resented this galling language by immediate personal violence, had not my whole attention been at the moment arrested by a fact of the most startling character. The cloak which I had worn was of a rare description of fur. How rare, how extravagantly costly, I shall not venture to say." Its fashion, too, was of my own fantastic invention, for I was fastidious to an absurd degree of coxcombry in matters of this frivolous nature. When, therefore, Mr. Preston reached me that which he had picked up upon the floor and near the folding doors of the apartment, it was with an astonishment nearly bordering upon terror that I perceived my own already hanging on my arm, where I had no doubt unwittingly placed it, and that the one presented me was but its exact counterpart in every, in even the minutest possible particular. The singular being who had so disastrously exposed me had been muffled, I remembered, in a cloak, and none had been worn at all by any of the members of our party with the exception of myself. Retaining some presence of mind, I took the one offered me by Preston, placed it, unnoticed, over my own, left the apartment with a resolute scowl of defiance, and, next morning ere dawn of day, commenced a hurried journey from Oxford to the continent, in a perfect agony of horror and of shame. I fled in vain. My evil destiny pursued me as if in exultation, and proved, indeed, that the exercise of its mysterious dominion had as yet only begun. 
Scarcely had I set foot in Paris, ere I had fresh evidence of the detestable interest taken by this Wilson in my concerns. Years flew, while I experienced no relief. Villain! At Rome, with how untimely, yet with how spectral an officiousness, stepped he in between me and my ambition, at Vienna, too, at Berlin, and at Moscow. Where, in truth, had I not bitter cause to curse him within my heart? From this inscrutable tyranny did I at length flee, panic-stricken, as from a pestilence, and to the very ends of the earth I fled in vain. And again, and again, in secret communion with my own spirit, would I demand the questions, Who is he? Whence came he? And what are his objects? But no answer was there found, and then I scrutinized, with a minute scrutiny, the forms and the methods and the leading traits of his impertinent supervision. But even here, there was very little upon which to base a conjecture. It was noticeable, indeed, that in no one of the multiplied instances in which he had of late crossed my path had he so crossed it except to frustrate those schemes or to disturb those actions which, if fully carried out, might have resulted in bitter mischief. Poor justification this, in truth, for an authority so imperiously assumed— poor indemnity for natural rights of self-agency so pertinaciously, so insultingly denied. I had also been forced to notice that my tormentor, for a very long period of time, while scrupulously and with miraculous dexterity maintaining his whim of an identity of apparel with myself, had so contrived it in the execution of his varied interference with my will that I saw not at any moment the features of his face. Be Wilson what he might, this, at least, was but the veriest of affectation or of folly. Could he, for an instant, have supposed that, in my admonisher at Eton, in the destroyer of my honor at Oxford, in him who thwarted my ambition at Rome, my revenge at Paris, my passionate love at Naples, or what he falsely termed my avarice in Egypt, that in this my arch-enemy and evil genius, I could fail to recognize the William Wilson of my schoolboy days, the namesake, the companion, the rival, the hated and dreaded rival at Dr. Bransby's? Impossible! But let me hasten to the last eventful scene of the drama. Thus far I had succumbed supinely to this imperious domination, the sentiment of deep awe with which I habitually regarded the elevated character, the majestic wisdom, the apparent omnipresence and omnipotence of Wilson, added to a feeling of even terror, with which certain other traits in his nature and assumptions inspired me, had operated hitherto to impress me with an idea of my own utter weakness and helplessness, and to suggest an implicit, although bitterly reluctant, submission to his arbitrary will. But, of late days, I had given myself up entirely to wine, and its maddening influence upon my hereditary temper rendered me more and more impatient of control. I began to murmur, to hesitate, to resist. And was it only fancy which induced me to believe that, with the increase of my own firmness, that of my tormentor underwent a proportional diminution. 
Be this as it may, I now began to feel the inspiration of a burning hope, and at length nurtured in my secret thoughts a stern and desperate resolution that I would submit no longer to be enslaved. It was at Rome, during the Carnival of 18-blank, that I attended a masquerade in the Palazzo of the Neapolitan Duke de Broglio. I had indulged more freely than usual in the excesses of the wine-table, and now the suffocating atmosphere of the crowded rooms irritated me beyond endurance. The difficulty, too, of forcing my way through the mazes of the company contributed not a little to the ruffling of my temper, for I was anxiously seeking, let me not say with what unworthy motive, the young, the gay, the beautiful wife of the aged and doting de Broglio. With a too unscrupulous confidence, she had previously communicated to me the secret of the costume in which she would be habited, and now, having caught a glimpse of her person, I was hurrying to make my way into her presence. At this moment, I felt a light hand placed upon my shoulder, and that ever-remembered, low, damnable whisper within my ear. In an absolute frenzy of wrath, I turned at once upon him who had thus interrupted me and seized him violently by the collar. He was attired, as I had expected, in a costume altogether similar to my own, wearing a Spanish cloak of blue velvet, begirt about the waist with a crimson belt, sustaining a rapier. A mask of black silk entirely covered his face. Scoundrel! I said in a voice husky with rage, while every syllable I uttered seemed as new fuel to my fury. Scoundrel! Impostor! Accursed villain! You shall not, you shall not dog me unto death! Follow me, or I stab you where you stand! And I broke my way from the ballroom into a small antechamber adjoining, dragging him unresistingly with me as I went. Upon entering, I thrust him furiously from me. He staggered against the wall, while I closed the door with an oath and commanded him to draw. He hesitated but for an instant, then, with a slight sigh, drew in silence and put himself upon his defense. The contest was brief indeed. I was frantic with every species of wild excitement and felt within my single arm the energy and power of a multitude. In a few seconds I forced him by sheer strength against the wainscoting, and thus, getting him at mercy, plunged my sword with brute ferocity repeatedly through and through his bosom. At that instant, some person tried the latch of the door. I hastened to prevent an intrusion, and then immediately returned to my dying antagonist. But what human language can adequately portray that astonishment, that horror, which possessed me at the spectacle then presented to view. The brief moment in which I averted my eyes had been sufficient to produce, apparently, a material change in the arrangements at the upper or farther end of the room. A large mirror, so at first it seemed to me in my confusion, now stood where none had been perceptible before, and as I stepped up to it, in extremity of terror, Mine own image, but with features all pale and dabbled in blood, advanced to meet me with a feeble and tottering gait. Thus it appeared, I say, but was not. It was my antagonist, it was Wilson, who then stood before me in the agonies of his dissolution. His mask and cloak lay where he had thrown them upon the floor. 
Not a thread in all his raiment, not a line in all the marked and singular lineaments of his face, which was not, even in the most absolute identity, mine own. It was Wilson. But he spoke no longer in a whisper, and I could have fancied that I myself was speaking when he said, You have conquered, and I yield. Yet, henceforward art thou also dead dead to the world, to heaven, and to hope. In me didst thou exist, and, in my death, see by this image, which is thine own, how utterly thou hast murdered thyself. Okay, the famous William Wilson. So, Evie, did you enjoy the story? I did. I I like doppelganger stories. Mm, mm-hmm. They're historical and they're current. They um, they never get old. Yeah. So I developed for you. I sent this to you in advance. A scale of creepiness, and <laughs> I want to I want to get at because the doppelganger is kind of a disorienting story. It's not like an ex murderer. But it's it's uh, still disturbing. But I wanted to see where you fit it into uh, the things that would feel that would give you the sense of the uncanny or the sense of, I guess, uh, creepiness. So on a scale of one to ten, where one is not creepy at all and ten is very creepy, how creepy would you find someone with your name showing up at your school who looks like you, has the same name as you and who looks like you? That would be a solid 10. <laughs> and I guess it would. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> Hard to get around that one. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. So the next scenario, you wake up one day and nobody recognizes you. Your family and everyone you know act like you're a total stranger. So... This one is also a 10, yeah. but it's, it's, it's because you mentioned earlier about being a parent and raising a child. Mm. Like that is my kid's biggest fear. And yeah. I think I sort of, you know, you pretend with a kid and they believe it and it just terrified them. Oh, so. I know. You know, it's funny because that's kind of the, that's a big Alfred Hitchcock plot, right? That's the, the mm-hmm. twist in North by Northwest and, you know, the idea that you sort of wake up and suddenly you're somebody else and everybody is calling you by a different name and and mm-hmm. nobody recognizes you. I still find it creepy. But when I was a kid, I found it completely terrifying. And, yeah. and when I think of it today, if I think I went down uh, to the breakfast table and my kids and my wife were kind of puzzled and looking at me and saying, who are you? I don't think I would be necessarily mm-hmm. scared. I would, it would maybe take me a long time. I would be, I would kind of laugh it off or think that there was some problem with them. But when I was a right. kid, thinking that I went out to the breakfast table and my parents didn't recognize me was just a terrifying thought. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so that one's a sliding scale, probably dependent on how important <laughs> the people are and how dependent you are on, uh, on the people who are who need to recognize you in order to keep you alive. Okay, scenario number three. Someone you love disappears, your partner. Later you find out that he's been living a few streets away for 20 years. 
you know, I think that is called ghosting. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and and it <laughs> and it would be very unfortunate if someone felt that they had to end our relationship like that. But yeah. I, I don't think it would terrify me. I think yeah. you know, that would say more about the person who couldn't be honest than it does about me. Yeah. So putting that in a modern context. Yeah. That's the plot of uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's story, Wakefield, which was apparently based on some real guy in London where he he left. His family had no idea where he was. And then they found out after 20 years that he was he had a whole separate family and everything. And he had just left. He was just been living a few streets away, mm-hmm. which is weird when you think about it in the abstract. But it's not the kind of thing that I would have like a nightmare about. Right. Yeah. Okay. Number four, you have amnesia and can't remember your identity. That is another classic, I yeah, think. Right. Um, a lot of movies based on that. You know, I think that'd be a seven. That'd be terrifying mm. in the sense that yeah. you don't have a safety net unless, you know, your stranger family would want to support you. But, yeah. but you know, without a memory, without a history, I mean, I mean, just imagine living in a world today where, where we don't really have a social safety net. That that would be pretty horrible. Yeah. Actually. Okay. Last one. Your long lost twin shows up. You've never heard of her before. She believes she's superior to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, she would clearly be mistaken. Like that. That's laughable. The superiority. <laughs> um. <laughs> No, that that would be. Uh, I think that's a that that is in a horror sort of story too, right? Yeah. Where the the twin is like murderous. Yeah, uh, yeah. That would be but, bad so, if, if the twin clearly wants to get rid of you. You know, like if the twin yeah. shows up and is is you know trying to replace you, that would be pretty creepy. Yeah, but it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting <laughs> to me that you you have someone with your name showing up at your school who looks like you was a pretty solid. That's that's about as bad as it gets out of these ones that I described for you. This is a scenario that uh, Poe was using in, in William Wilson here. You know, it's not being buried alive and it's not uh, a lot of his other, you know, scary tales, mm-hmm. but it still is is a pretty frightening kind of situation. So let me ask you within that category, I'm going to give you some, some scenarios here to see which one you would find the most creepy. Okay. Someone with your name shows up at your school who looks like you. She has a lot of similarities with you and she seems to be trying to be you. So just let me add a little bit of context to this. Yeah. And it, and it, sort of would help your view of how you look at William Wilson, right? right? Was it in his head? Yes. Did other people recognize the doppelganger? <laughs> right. Or right. was was it, you know, something he experienced? And and so to the extent that I experienced this person and and other people don't sort of recognize that this person in my rational sort of sick, disturbed mind does recognize and it's it's completely terrifying right because on the one hand you feel completely sane but you're in an insane situation yeah so well that's yeah you're kind of jumping ahead of me and why don't we just shift it and talk about the story because that's mm-hmm. what i was trying to get at with these questions the second set of questions one of the things i really enjoy about the story is how these details are revealed to us slowly you mm-hmm. know first we hear that 
the narrator has the same name as this person who arrived, which is, you know, interesting. But William Wilson is a common name. And you could imagine that, you know, I'm sure there are John Smiths who have John Smiths show up and, and in their lives and that kind of thing. Right. And then we hear they had the same birthday and then that they look the same. And then the voice is, you know, it's like the voice is trying to be imitated and the walk. And then that they arrived mm -hmm. on the same day of school and then no one seems to really notice the other William Wilson. And then he only arrives when the narrator is getting in trouble. And it, at some point, it starts to tip from, oh, what an unfortunate coincidence for you that this guy named William Wilson happened to be there and you two overlapped to, wait a second, is this somebody everybody else sees too? Is this a real person? Is it a figment of the narrator's imagination? Is it a a projection of some kind. And it's mm -hmm. not clear to me if it's, well, first of all, I think Poe kind of leaves a lot of these options open. But right. it's also not clear to me if it's more frightening to think that this was an, a real person or to think that it was a an insane narrator who was imagining this person. Yeah. Well... As someone who likes to think they're rational, it would be the the latter, right? Because you can't trust yourself, yeah. right? So if, if there is someone out there, you know, they say everyone has a twin, or at least they say that in these types of movies and books. Yeah. Th there is that person out there and you can sort of interact with them and other people do. But if, if, if you can't trust yourself mm. and your own sanity, like that is, that's what's terrifying. <laughs> I think I might go the other way. I see what you're saying, that the scariest thing, in some ways I, I believe that, that, you know, it's always, you know, I think it's why we're so afraid or we find it so frightening when we see people we love with Alzheimer's or something that mm -hmm. it feels like they must not be themselves. And what if that happens to me where... I forget who I really am and I, I lose this way of life that I know, the way that I think. What if I'm no longer able to do that? And it just looks terrifying from the outside. And mm -hmm. and yet, I feel like if someone looked just like me and showed up and had my name, mm -hmm. I would almost want it to be <laughs> that I had been knocked on the head or something and, and was imagining it because... Otherwise, I think I would think he was sent by the devil or or that there was some uh, plot to get me, you know, that the universe was sending this right. figure my way to haunt me. Right. It, it, it would mean that the world as you know it, you know, you would be completely wrong about it. And that is fair. Yeah. And then if you were traveling around the world to escape and the character, you know, the person kept showing up, you'd feel yeah. like... Uh, you're never going to escape this, this, uh, this demon. Yeah. What, what, what fascinates me about the story is that he is clearly high functioning at some level, right? Mm -hmm. He, despite the doppelganger, whether it's real or imagined, you know, he has this cadre of people who follow him. He's a leader. He, you know, is that, very good schools. So, you know, the world is still his oyster as long as he could keep it together, yeah. I think, mentally. And that, and he just falls apart and you uh, know, as the story goes on. You know what else is interesting about this? So there's this 
Stephen King is a good example of this when he was in at the height of his cocaine addiction and he was writing stories like Cujo and the mm-hmm. dog would represent his addiction or misery is another mm-hmm. one where the, the woman who, you know, takes care of the writer and then destroys him is his metaphor for addiction. He wasn't even necessarily trying to make it the metaphor, but it, it just was on his mind. You know, this, you can't get out of the grip mm-hmm. of this thing. Poe, when you read his letters, he was struggling with alcoholism, with laudanum uh, that he couldn't kick. You know, he was so upset about, uh, you know, he was trying so hard. He knew what the alcohol did to him, that it would basically turn him into this different person. Uh, But he would try so hard to kind of keep it at bay. But in this case, it's almost like reversed. We don't see the William Wilson character. He's not like, the uh, Cujo figure that's this scary demon that is is chasing you, but it's been suggested that it's post conscience, that it's the mm. manifestation of the narrator's conscience. That you know the the William Wilson is the one that's always showing up to say, uh, you know, don't do this, you'll regret it, or you'll, right. <laughs> you know, I'll be here to yeah. to uh, I'm I'm the good angel on your shoulder kind of thing. Don't give in to your worst impulses. So in that way, it's almost like he is haunted by this feeling that he's bad and he knows that he should be better than he is. No, that's exactly right. And that goes to, at the beginning of the story, for everyone who listened to the front end, he asked for pity or sympathy. Mm. And he does say that it was in his blood that he was destined to to be the, to engage in the debauchery that he does and and maybe, you know, he has no control over that. But, you know, the the William Wilson character shows up and tries to rein him in. And, and that's just sort of, you know, and that's where I was. That's what I was referring to when I mentioned. Um, and so it turns it on its head. The conscience, the, per, the imp of the perverse. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, if you're engaging in all these misdeeds, like it's not to your benefit to be forthcoming and say, I just cheated you at cards. Right. right, right. So when your conscience comes <laughs> in and tells you, yeah. tells announces to the room that, you know, <laughs> you should be kicked out. Like on the one hand, it's not to your interest, but also it is the right thing to do. Right. So, I mean, I, I that reading of it does make sense. And I, and I like the way it, it sort of turns the turns on its head, the way Stephen King did it with Cujo. Yeah. Um, I, I will say, following along with Stephen King, I did read Outsider. Mm. I don't know. It came out, I think maybe a couple years ago, and it was a made into an HBO movie. And it had the doppelganger from fantastical speculative fiction, horror fiction, uh, where there was a, a person, a monster, who would put on another person characteristics and commit all sorts of murder in Mm. their place so it is timeless okay well Mm. let's leave things there for this one evie lee thank you very much for joining me today on the history of literature thanks for having me jack Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Evie for joining me, and of course to Edgar Allan Poe for his story about doppelgangers. George Harrison once said, Sure, the Beatles got fame and fortune, but in return they gave the public their nervous systems. 
Edgar Allan Poe gave us his nervous system, and he didn't even get the fame and fortune. He gave it to us for nothing, simply because he had to. You can help the show at patreon.com slash literature or by buying us a coffee at historyofliterature.com slash shop or throwing a few coins our way at paypal.me slash jackwilson, J-A-C-K-E, Wilson. All those links are in the show notes, I believe. We are a member of LitHub Radio and the Podglomerate Network, which is at www.thepodglomerate.com. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. Podglomerate, a sonic universe.